some companies still know how business casual is done. It's strictly business. All right. How you doing out there? It's another episode of Business Casual. I'm Jeffrey Short alongside Ben Thomas. Ben, how you doing? I'm doing fantastic. We're both filling in today for Daniel and Tyler. They're both at shoots and, uh, you know, conferences this week. So I know. I'm hesitating. Taking over the mantle. <laughs> I don't want to say we're the B team here. No, nope, we're the best team. expectations low right off the bat. But, I mean, yeah, we're happy to be filling in for Daniel and Tyler they're over on the East Coast. Daniel's in Florida, uh, in Orlando, specifically at IAPA. That's a huge trade show for uh, theme parks, amusement parks, all of that stuff. So we'll see if he is just going to be riding roller coasters the whole time or if he's actually going to be talking about uh, some of the newest innovation in that space. And then Tyler is out with our other colleague, Zach Werblow, in uh, Nazareth, Pennsylvania, I believe, is the actual yes. town. Yes. Uh, they're filming another episode of Made in America, which is extremely exciting. Those have been awesome so far. And uh, they're at Martin Guitars, so that should be a really fun one in particular. Uh, see how music in America is made, basically. Um, but to, to see how music in America <laughs> is made, that's what they're doing. They're yes, profiling yes. the entire history of music in America. <laughs> well, it does go back to, I think, the 18th uh, or 19th century, so they're getting a pretty holistic view at uh, the musical history of the United States. So uh, that, that I'm excited to see what they, no, it they is come true. back that with. Is true. Right. Um, but here it is Wednesday, November 20th, 2019. Uh, finally got the date right on the rundown, which I did not do last week. So we're <laughs> off to a better start, I suppose. But uh, we have a loaded schedule. We're going to be talking with our own Lauren Farrell. She's in studio with us here right now uh, to talk about some exciting news uh, about market scale and conversational marketing, what that means for companies, uh, not only just market scale, but uh, 50 that were recognized for doing a great job at that. We also have some exciting news about the Olympics, where you can stay. Maybe it's going to be a little bit easier and less expensive for not only the Olympics, but those who travel to the Games. So you'll want to stay tuned for that. And, of course, <clears throat> we have the holiday season coming up. So there's plenty of retail news that's going to be coming out in the next month. But even though Christmas and the holidays are still about a month out, right now is kind of go time for retail and shoppers. So... Uh, it seems relevant this week that we're talking about that. And then we're going to end with some fried chicken news, which is always something that I think people want to hear more about and consume more. So it seems like a very Friday uh, story, but we're going to be doing it here on Wednesday. So uh, are you ready to get right into it, Ben? Yeah, Wednesday on Friday, baby. Friday, no, <laughs> yeah. Friday on Wednesday. Friday on Wednesday. Uh-oh. <laughs> we're already getting it backwards. But all right, let's dive into the first story here. So Airbnb has teamed up with the Olympic Games, the International Olympic Committee, on what is reported to be a $500 million deal to cover the next five Olympics. What Airbnb is going to be doing is, is sponsoring the Games, but also um, getting opportunities to you know, host their service in these Olympic cities. So for the Olympics, they're seeing a lot of value in this because they no longer have to uh, spend a ton of money building out hotels, resorts, experiences for travelers. They're still going to be building the Olympic Village, uh, but the ballooning costs that people have really become uh, fed up with, these host cities have uh, become fed up with, is sort of being alleviated by an innovative company like Airbnb. So that's going to kick off uh, starting at next year's games in Tokyo, which is coming up pretty quickly, actually. Uh, so what are your thoughts on this? I mean, it's 
seems to be kind of a win-win. I mean, some people might still have some reservations about staying at an Airbnb over a big hotel brand, but overall, it seems like a huge cost savings opportunity for travelers and the games themselves. I think it is. Um, it's interesting because these are these are five of Airbnb's biggest, uh, I guess, populated cities with mm-hmm. hosts. Uh, something like 200,000 Airbnb hosts are going to be in these cities. Um, you know, it, it it, like you said, it doesn't really replace the Olympic Village, but what it does do is gives families of Olympic athletes, uh, news media, things like that, places to stay uh, on a much more sustainable level. Um, I think what's really interesting about this, though, is that not every city is thrilled about it, right? The Paris mayor came out and said that she was she was almost against it. Because one of the interesting things about these cities is, uh, is that most of them have the infrastructure there to actually deal with high levels of tourism. So the cities that generally can deal with it are the ones that are kind of getting uh, buoyed by Airbnb a little bit instead of the the ones you know in Russia where they're building multi-billion dollar stadiums mm-hmm. and infrastructure for uh, single use, well, I guess dual use if you include the Paralympic Games. But it's, it's so interesting uh, to see the Airbnb really is, is making this play now. Yeah, I think it's a huge – I mean, to me, I think it's a very natural fit. I think Airbnb – uh, seems to be a good solution for the problem that you kind of hear and you see articles. I mean, ha- after every Olympics, every World Cup, you see an article that's uh, photos of, you know, two years ago's World Cup, and it's always in an abandoned stadium or an abandoned hotel. So I think you brought up sustainability. That's another big thing that I think the IOC and Airbnb both spoke about um, in doing this move is that you don't want to have to build a huge complex for something that's going to be used for three weeks even if it does bring in a ton of money you might as well use the existing infrastructure Uh, and i think going forward you have cities like los angeles and i'm thinking of something like the world cup that's going to be played in north america i believe in 2024 i wish tyler was here to confirm that as the soccer guy but um the big advantage of having the world cup in the north american markets is that we already have all these stadiums here so that saves so much money and it is just seemingly an issue at almost every olympics or world cup or whatever big event you're hosting is that these stadiums and and hotels kind of you know they serve their purpose and everyone wants that big shiny hotel when you get to the olympics of course but you don't necessarily need it and i think airbnb is also going to give people that kind of local feel maybe yeah, I'll jump in here, Jeff. Yeah. FIFA World Cup is 2026 here in okay. the U.S. <laughs> um, but it is interesting because we're still seeing that, like, L.A. is getting the Olympics. But guess why? They're building all new stadium and infrastructure. Mm-hmm. But they're in a city that supports financially. They don't have to redo their entire infrastructure. Mm-hmm. But we are still seeing that need for new. But like you said, Airbnb um, already has those homeowners and those people. So while... You know, we're not going to see another uh, Olympics like Russia, I don't think, any time in the next 50 years, probably. <laughs> um, there's there's a lot of value in um, really looking at the sustainability end of, essentially, its reuse. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just for Airbnb reaching, I mean, Ben, you alluded to it earlier, these are big markets for them, but reaching new customers, seeing that they can take, I mean, Airbnb started really for events because all the hotels go up in price or they're sold out. So that's kind of the niche that Airbnb sought to um, fill in when it started as a company. And now you're seeing, can they really facilitate this sort of influx of people on this scale? So it's a big sort of opportunity for them to uh, 
prove that they're a viable um, hospitality company, really. Yeah, well, before we, we move on, I want to kind of speak uniquely to, you know, Airbnb's big event strategy, right? So mm-hmm. they we had the Super Bowl in Dallas mm-hmm. six years ago, something like that. And so every hotel, pretty much from the time that they announced it, was was booked and sold out. But Airbnb came in, um, and this was this was really before Airbnb was like in the cultural zeitgeist, right. fully like fully immersed in uh, culture. But Airbnb basically, so the city of Arlington, uh, I think, partnered with Airbnb and offered something like a thousand houses or whatever, and and you know came in and allowed people to to come in and stay and you know obviously a lot of people wanted to stay in the city of dallas but you know airbnb coming in and doing something something like this with the olympics makes makes total sense it's great because they get their name on um the product which is one of the i mean i guess the single most viewed sports event in the world but uh you know it's a great opportunity for them to make some money but also create a good opportunity for people to to stay near the olympics Mm -hmm. absolutely well from the Olympics, that's going to be a surge of people, and the holidays are coming up. That's going to be a surge of shopping. Uh, coming up, it's actually starting on Friday after Thanksgiving through Cyber Monday is the five busiest days of shopping in the entire year. So this is really, I mean, the peak shopping time, like I said, every single year. Last year, uh, sales jumped across the board 20% over 2017. Uh, they're expecting similar numbers this year. So uh, stores are going to be pinched a little bit in terms of getting their products to people quickly, the, the way that people expect nowadays. And even some of the biggest companies in the world, like Amazon, last year had to get creative. They just did not have the infrastructure to fulfill all of these orders across the country and internationally even. So um, third-party warehouse rental software platforms and actual physical warehouses that have been rented out sort of almost like in an Airbnb fashion or an Uber fashion uh, are kind of coming to the rescue. But uh, companies are really getting creative, I guess, to sort of facilitate the fact that everyone seems to be going online these days for their shopping. So I want to kind of get your opinions, guys, of of just where this is all moving and, and your take on the fact that even some of the biggest companies in the world cannot facilitate all of these orders within their own existing infrastructure well look there's yeah i mean saying that e-commerce is taking over is the understatement of the century (laughs) and that was that was a statement that somebody could have made 20 years ago Mm -hmm. right but it's 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 obvious and it's apparent uh people for the for the most part would rather shop online get something delivered Mm -hmm. to their door yeah the so retailers like amazon they offer so many products, right? And they, they, you know, they have fulfillment centers across the country. They do have some here in Dallas. They have, you know, wherever. Um, but they, they're kind of disadvantaged because they don't have the infrastructure in place to deal with these, these, you know, five massive days of the year, right? Mm-hmm. So they, they will use space rental and stuff like that, which is great. I mean, it's almost like a we work for space, right? right, you're, just, right. you're just borrowing somebody else's space. I think the interesting thing here is this is where your WalMarts and Targets uh, and big box retailers actually have a huge advantage because they already have systems in place to deal with returns and shipping, mm-hmm. and they have the storage space already. So this that's why, I mean, we're seeing, you know, companies like Walmart doing doing bigger numbers than anticipated. A lot of that is, is kind of lifted by their grocery market, but that's kind of the same model, right? So they already have the groceries in store, and now all they need is somebody to come pick it up and, you know, bring it to 
somebody that lives two miles away, right? So, so that's why these these Overstock.com and these Amazon companies are going to struggle a little bit more, you know, with these higher traffic days. And I think I think maybe this year you start to see your big box re- retailers kind of come in and save the day a little bit because the traffic, the traffic demand is so high for shipping. And everybody wants two-day shipping. Everybody wants free shipping. Everyone's, right. Everybody wants all that. And that just costs Amazon so much money on top of the fact that they've got a now-rent warehouse space. So their right. profit margins are going down. Right. Um, but I don't know. That's that's my two cents on, on you know, big box retailers maybe coming in to try and save the day this year. Yeah, absolutely. And before I give it over to Lauren, I just wanted to read off a couple stats from uh, the National Retail Federation. So they said 165 million people are expected to shop over this five-day span. Uh, And of course, people are going to be shopping on multiple of these days. So these numbers won't add up to 165. It's going to be far more. But they say 39.6 million consumers are considering shopping on Thanksgiving Day, 114.6 million on Black Friday alone, 66.6 66.6 million on Small Business Saturday and 33.3 million on Sunday. Uh, of course, Cyber Monday is kind of the closing bell, and 68.7 million are expected to take advantage of of those deals. So, Black Friday, Cyber Monday leading the way, which is expected, I guess. But um, I mean, that's just a pretty staggering amount of of orders. You can imagine why these third party warehouse uh, venues are really necessary today. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to find me out on Black Friday, so I'm one of the people (laughs) that contribute to those online orders. Um, But I think it is interesting, Ben, with what you said about these big box retailers, is for so many years we saw them opening their doors earlier and earlier that Black Friday started on, Mm -hmm. like, Thanksgiving afternoon. And now we're starting to see this shift of these big box retailers not opening on Thanksgiving or opening later, Um, and some even closing. I know, like, REI, for example, and there are no – you know, they're no Walmart or Target, but we're starting to see this shift where they're keeping it to Black Friday and people are going online more. So I do think that they're going to see an even bigger advantage here in the coming years. Yeah. And I mean, even just scanning the web in recent days and weeks, I mean, there's already sales going on. It's pretty staggering. Just the competition to get that best deal among your competitors. So the expectation from the consumer is free shipping, basically. And it's uh, two-day delivery. So that's really, I mean, just accelerating the idea that these companies need to get these products out so quickly and so cheaply. So it's it's obviously increasing volume because people are seeing these deals. They want to get involved in the action. Why shouldn't they? So uh, we'll, I'm sure, be covering this story as it unfolds over the next week or so over the Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, right now, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back and talk about something really fun that's going on at Market Scale and conversational marketing with Lauren. So Stay tuned for that. Today's content is brought to you by MarketScale. Do you run a B2B business? Nobody creates more podcasts, videos, case studies, and blogs for B2B marketers like you than MarketScale. Ask us how we can help you today. All right, we're back. We're continuing our conversation with Ben and Lauren. Uh, Lauren, we brought you in here today because MarketScale was just recognized for something that we've been doing here and something that a lot of companies have been doing recently. So can you kind of fill us in on the recognition that MarketScale received? 
Yeah, absolutely. So yesterday we were recognized by Drift, who is um, actually the company that coined the term conversational marketing um, as a top 50 conversational marketer. Um, so a leader in this space. Um, and it's really exciting for us because it's something that we only adapted back in July for not just market scale, but also for our clients. Um, and conversational marketing is really just transforming marketing and the way we interact with customers and prospects and buyers today. Um, so it's just really exciting to be, you know, in those mere four months to be recognized for um, the impact that we've created and leading the way in really implementing, it's not just a technology, but the strategy, um, you know, in the B2B marketplace. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, is that just sort of an extension of where you see marketing going now with, I mean, your website is basically your storefront nowadays and it's a 24 seven, uh, entity. So how important do you think it is really to just have that sort of customer facing, uh, tool? at your disposal for anyone that really is running a business that has a website. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny having just talked about, you mm -hmm. know, shopping in stores is right. we say <laughs> that your website is your biggest sales tool. And as you said, Jeff, we consider your website a store and we say right now it's an empty store. You go to Walmart or Target mm -hmm. or anywhere, someone's there to help you and answer your questions. But when you go to a website and you're making these big purchases and you are there to navigate it all by yourself, um, you often leave because you can't find the answer you want. But the idea of conversational marketing is there's something to greet you as soon as you get there. Mm -hmm. And that's a chat bot. Um, and that bot can help you navigate and it also can have people join. Um, and it is definitely the future. We know that personalization and the buyer experience are the two most important things we're seeing changing um, in marketing. It's not just generalized messaging. We're seeing, you know, account-based uh, marketing now and conversational marketing is leading that personalized experience. You know, it's kind of that pick your own route. You know, mm -hmm. someone comes on, the chat bot pops up and it, you know, provides some, you know, questions or answers and kind of starts directing someone on their journey um, and they're not alone. They don't have to fill out a form and wait two days for a response. Mm -hmm. um, conversational marketing is literally changing not just the buyer experience, but it's changing marketing and sales. It, it's shortening that buying cycle, which is incredible. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about on the back end? So people are going online. So they're, they're on the MarketScale website at 10 p.m. No one's going to be in the office here to necessarily pick up the phone, but they're exploring market scale. Kind of what do we see when we come into the office and at eight, do we understand what this person wants or who was on our site asking what kind of questions to make our our services better? Is that sort of yeah. what we see out of it? Absolutely. So we can see any conversation that someone had with the bot, but it also goes as far as it's integrated with our team's calendars. So someone can be on at, you know, ten PM, maybe they're West Coast, mm -hmm. or maybe they're honestly in Europe and it's the next morning for them. They can go and they can literally schedule a meeting with our team. Um, the calendar is all up to date. And so, you know, our VP of sales could come in this morning and have a, you know, a meeting booked with a potential mm -hmm. prospect um, for 10 a.m. And there was no, you know, emailing back and forth to figure right. out scheduling. Um, they've already put in, you know, we've saw their journey of what they're looking for, what their questions are, what their needs are. Um, and it's really incredible. It's something all done in real time. And we know everyone wants what they want when they want it, which is typically right now. <laughs> Hence, two-day shipping sure. and same-day <laughs> shipping. It's kind of that same concept is, 
people don't have to wait. They can get the things they need right then and there. And they don't have to waste time being placed on hold or talking to a person. Yeah, I mean, that certainly seems better, like you just said, than being on hold. Or I think everyone in business can relate to the email back and forth. Mm -hmm. You just get, you know, what could be accomplished in such a short amount of time takes five emails over the course of four days and it just gets dragged out. So I think people definitely want to find solutions to that age old problem. Um, <clears throat> Are there companies out there that have sort of pioneered this or is there an example maybe even in the top 50 of, of a huge company that has really taken a deep dive into this or, or did anything I guess in general if not just kind of stick out to you uh, with the Drift top 50? Yeah absolutely so I think Drift in general has really pioneered and they've done an incredible job educating people mm -hmm. on the why of conversational marketing, why you know businesses need it. And um, it's something like 81% of buyers don't fill out forms anymore, mm -hmm. which is insane. So you're getting people to your site and you're not you know, optimizing them. You're not, you're not capturing them. So Drift in general, I think has empowered companies, done a great job educating. Um, you know, they did like their top six and there's companies, you know, anywhere from, you know, Adobe to Cisco, you know, there's a lot of big brands that are um, implementing it. And really it's to the point now, especially in B2B, you know, um, a B2C website's a little bit different. You mm -hmm. have your one-off, you know, it, it's typically a shorter buying cycle. It's very different. But in B2B, um, if your business isn't implementing conversational marketing, you're kind of behind because someone can go to your competitor's site who might have that and get their answers right away mm -hmm. and be frankly sold right away. Um, and so we're starting to see it more and more and you know drift would obviously be able to speak to the percentage increase they're seeing each yeah. year um but it truly is something that is not a oh maybe we should it's a would you not have a blog on your site like you it's right. a requirement now right. and especially looking into 2020 because that's right where the planning stage is um it's something that is a necessity for your business today Fantastic. Well, it's amazing news here at MarketScale to be recognized by the people that sort of, uh, I mean, invented the term, basically. So it doesn't Absolutely. get better than that. Uh, so, yeah, if you're on MarketScale, you'll see our chatbot. I would encourage anyone to explore that. But keep an eye out for those in general. If you're if you're online, you'll see a lot more of that. And we're excited to be sort of uh, pioneering it ourselves here at MarketScale. So, Lauren, thanks for that information. We're going to take one quick last break and come back with uh, some good smelling fried chicken, I guess. Have you ever thought to yourself, podcasts are pretty cool. I should use one to market my company. Good news, you're not alone. But where do you start? MarketScale's Thought Leadership Club makes it easy to dive into the world of B2B podcasting. With in-house podcast production, audio hosting, and more, MarketScale can be your podcast partner that sets you up as a thought leader in your industry, creating the content that powers B2B. For more information, head to marketscale.com and find out what thousands of companies already know to be true, that podcasting is the future of thought leadership in B2B marketing. All right, we're back, wrapping up with the last segment here. So we've been teasing this as a fried chicken story with KFC, and it is, but it's really a technology story. It's really a business story. And I think it's something that everyone can sort of relate to with the way that people are, are consuming food and ordering food today. So 
Uh, KFC, they just had a, a big profile piece in QSR Magazine, that's Quick Service Restaurant Magazine, uh, talking about all the ways that people, you know, really get their products now from these restaurants. So it's no longer just parking in the parking lot and going to the counter. I mean, obviously, people are, are familiar with drive through for generations now, but these new apps are really where a lot of volume is coming into fast food chains these days, and it can pose an issue. I mean, these companies were not technology companies, they're restaurants. So um, finding innovative ways to make sure that everyone's customer experience is good, no matter whether they're dining in, driving through, getting it delivered. Um, that's sort of the crux at, of the issue that every quick service restaurant is facing right now. So um, KFC is really seeming to be taking a lead in this. Um, they've basically wanted to make sure <clears throat> in working with Grubhub that their point of sale system was connected seamlessly so that they don't have 18 different tablets with orders coming in. Everything is organized by the time that it was ordered, but also because they know that when you order something on Grubhub, that driver or delivery person is on a kind of a different schedule. They can work with their geofencing to see where that person is. They can sort of requeue that order to put it more in line with when that delivery person is going to pick it up, making it a fresher product by the time it gets to that vehicle. So they're really, you know, diving into a deeper way of keeping things fresh. And um, I want to get your opinions, guys, on what you think of this and, and how much innovation has taken place in this space and just what you thought of this story. Food delivery is not new, right? Mm -hmm. We all know that, every, I mean, pizza delivery has been popular for the last 40 years, 50 years maybe. Um, the kind of this recent onset of, of, you know, paid food delivery is is great for a lot of people because it introduces a lot of convenience, but it creates challenge. We kind of talked about it a little bit about freshness of food, right? So mm -hmm. if, I, if I order something, say, from a McDonald's uh, on DoorDash, right. probably my lead time is going to be at a minimum 30 minutes. And if I get a if I get a burger and fries, that food is going to show up very soggy, right? Uh, just because, you know, McDonald's created their menu based on people eating either or grabbing it in the drive-through or eating it in their restaurant and generally speaking a lot of people will just eat it in the, eat it in the car if they get it mm -hmm. in the drive-through. But so KFC uh, is, so chicken, we'll just say chicken, fried chicken generally keeps a little bit better than a burger or something like that that's got, you know, just meat and whatever. Mm -hmm. I don't even know what that means. But yes, <laughs> fried chicken statistically, I guess, statistic, I don't know. There's they, they do say evidence, that in but the they, article. But it does, it, it does, does say, say that. Fried that chicken it, does it keep better. better. Yeah. Um, you know, it is interesting, though, because, uh, you know, in the article reading on QSR, um, you know, it mentions that it takes a lot longer for uh, – KFC to make the fried chicken mm -hmm. than it would probably a McDonald's or something like that. So this this timeliness um, thing for them is is absolutely crucial, right? If they know their driver's on the way, and you know they need to have it fresh whenever he comes to pick it up, he or she comes to pick it up, then you know this. I think I think this technology for them is going to be absolutely crucial. Yeah, I mean it's something that I don't think a lot of people consider when you look at um, a delivery service like a Grubhub. You see the time, and you're not really thinking about why that time is why does something take longer so it is something as 
simple though as okay it actually does just simply take longer for kfc to make their fried chicken than mcdonald's to make their burgers but also you don't want you know you just don't want your product to be suboptimal when you pick it up so there are things that kfc can do to alert the drivers of the timeline keep them flowing and when you're dealing with so many different orders from different points you have the front of the store you have the drive-through you have the online that's sort of three businesses in one and that makes it extremely difficult so um, i think the fact that they're thinking about these kind of things is really important even just the geofencing knowing where the cars are to a specific point can make such a huge difference and um, it's exciting to see that these companies are considering the really nuanced parts of their uh, not only just delivery, but how everyone's getting their food, no matter where they're coming from, drive-through, in-store, or delivery. Yeah. So, excuse me. Apparently, <laughs> I haven't talked in a while. Um, the one thing I would say is just kind of tying everything a little bit more together is interesting. Uh, three of the stores you talked about are different technologies, and it's all based on timing. So, obviously, here mm-hmm. with KFC, with conversational marketing, with um, warehousing in Black Friday, like our society and consumers and buyers are changing to quality experience and that immediacy. And Mm -hmm. it's really interesting to see how, you know, these niche areas of industries are starting to have to adapt to that. And it'll be interesting to see which ones are proactive in that rather than waiting till that need, Um, because there's really not an area of business or people's lives that that's going to be the next place that that goes towards. Yeah, and uh, just to wrap up this last point, KFC's U.S. Chief Technology Officer, which was not even a position until pretty recently, actually, the last couple of years, Christopher Caldwell said 78 to 80 percent of the questions from his franchisees are about just technology and innovation. So uh, it's it's not about managing people or product. I mean. There can obviously be problems with new menu items and that throwing off your system, things like that. But it's really all about technology. And so I think for the consumer, that's pretty exciting. And for technologies, uh, technology companies, software companies, this is a huge market, of course. Agree. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, like Lauren said, everything is about time. And especially in today's culture, uh, time just matters. Time matters. And people want stuff immediately. So. That's that's a nice tease for our upcoming episode. Coming up <laughs> next of Diving Into Data with TC, a lot of timeliness. But uh, Jeff, Lauren, thank you guys for coming on today. Excited to have you. 